You're listening to episode 45 of Paz de Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast, please go to pasachipotle.com. You can subscribe, rate, and leave a review for the show using your favorite podcast app. Hey, this is Jaime Vega, currently in Austin, Texas. I'm originally from a small village in La Sierra Gorda, Querétaro, called El Quirino. I thoroughly enjoy listening to uh, Pasaje Potle, learning about the diverse foods as well as regions in Mexico and history, and super excited about what Rocio has in store for us. Hola, and welcome back to another episode of Pasaje Potle podcast. I am very excited to present another installment of this ongoing series about the culinary regions of Mexico. It makes me really happy when I get your messages and you share with me that when I talk about certain places or dishes, it makes you think of your families. And for some people, it evokes great holidays past. And for many of you, it is also a chance to hear for the first time about the grand culinary and cultural diversity that Mexico has to offer. It is indeed what this podcast is all about, and I raised by your chata for all of you. Apart from the great stories that you will hear today, I have got an addition for your summer reading list. My chosen book this time is Rick Stein's Road to Mexico. Rick is a self-made cook from southern England, and over the decades, his food and travel shows keep getting better and better. Road to Mexico is a charming book and series full of anecdotes, great photography, and delicious recipes that Ricky harvested in his last road trip in Mexico, of course. You can get plenty more book inspiration on my website section, Books for Cooks, where you can find my personal reviews of truly grand books, including My Sweet Mexico, Frida Kahlo's Fiestas, and The Untold Story of the Potato. That's an intriguing title. And many, many more books. Now, on our previous stop in this series, we visited the Huasteca region. And this time we are getting our surfing boards and sunscreen on because we are heading to the Pacific West Coast, visiting the vibrant contrast of land and sea, mountains and deserts, plains and valleys of Baja California Norte and Baja California Sur, Sonora, Sinaloa and Nayarit. I have received loads of comments about the folk music I've chosen to accompany previous episodes of the culinary regions, and the good news is that I will continue indulging you with a taste of some classic tunes of popular folk songs from each state, which I will play at the beginning of each segment. Well, we have a lot to cover today, so let's not delay our journey. I hope you enjoy this episode.
The northern states of what is Mexico today were the entry point of the many migrant groups of nomadic diasporas that came in a large migration crossing from Europe over 14,000 years ago. And as they moved south, they gradually dissipated throughout the territory from what is today Alaska to the most remote lands of South America. It is actually curious that most of the groups that chose to settle in the north and west coast of what is Mexico today they largely preserved a semi-nomadic life. Very few developed actual complex urban settlements, unlike the tribes from central and southern Mexico who created the monumental pyramids and citadels that we can visit today. Now, here's a disclaimer. I have to say that this region presented quite a challenge to put together when I was writing this episode. Because while all the states I will mention today are located in the same area, the actual social and cultural geography couldn't be more different and complex. So I think it just makes sense that we travel back in time and see how the nation's geography took shape. After the Spanish conquest and the foundation of New Spain in 1521, this territory, which we call today Mexico, was divided many times in very confusing ways. Sometimes the regions were called kingdoms, provinces, intendancies, and so on. But it was actually significantly more organized than the British colonization of the northern part of the continent. So to put that in context, the very first British expeditions into the Americas began much later than the Spanish, in 1584 to be precise. But it wasn't until 1607 when Jamestown in modern-day Virginia was funded. And long story short, as you know, the Treaty of Paris, which granted independence to the 13 British colonies, was signed in 1783. How? Ever, by 1794, New Spain still pretty much owned more than half of what is today the US, including the modern-day states of California, Nevada, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Oregon, Washington, and even Canada's British Columbia. Mexico gained its independence from Spain until 1810, but the country still remained very weirdly divided in six Capitanías Generales, two kingdoms, one of Mexico and one of Nueva Galicia, and two general commandancies. Now, given another giant leap forward in history, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which put an end to the Mexican-American War in February the 2nd of 1848, came with a very handsome bonus for the US, with the addition of California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, Kansas, Colorado, Oklahoma, and New Mexico. This was actually pretty shocking for civilians, because that also meant that more than 80,000 Mexicans changed nationalities overnight. Mexico eventually put itself together and reorganized its political division and created the 32 states that we have today, plus the capital. And in case you didn't know, the country's full official name is the United States of Mexico, which, as you can understand, creates a bit of a confusion. You know, technically, we are also located in the north part of the American continent, so we could also call Mexico the United States of North America. But let's not steer those waters. 
I know this was a long historical detour. I thought it would really help making sense of how geopolitics impacted the way Mexico's northern regions interact with each other and how in today's episode will be particularly evident that some of these states have a more intense interaction with the US than they do with the rest of the nation and how this has helped shape their culture and modern cuisine. Our first stop today is Sonora, a huge land with a very dramatic geography covered by mountain ranges, valleys and an impressive coastline that flanks the Gulf of California famous for having an incredibly diverse marine life and many protected natural areas which are home to majestic fin and sperm whales. A little known aspect about Sonora is that thousands of years ago, this region was home to a large population of enormous dinosaurs, including one of my favorite from Mexico, the Sonorasaurus, which is a type of brachiosaur. You know, those gentle giant herbivores with long, long tails and even longer necks. The tribes that form Sonora's cultural groups are the Cucapa, Opata, Cachita, Kekapu, Guajiros, Papco, and Ceris. Now, there are two other groups that have also been reluctant participants of some of Mexico's darkest historical episodes, going way back to the colonial period and even right before the Mexican Revolution, when the Mayo and Yaqui tribes bravely led uprisings to defend themselves against the systematic abuse displayed discrimination and forced labor at mines and haciendas. The Tratichos Heard is a traditional song called Tololoche, which is an instrument that you might know as double bass. And this song uses a classic technique of pizzicato, meaning pinching and pulling the strings to create that distinctive sound. Now let's talk about edible landscapes. The arid plains of Sonora turned to be a better home for foreign wheat than for the thirsty native corn crops. The introduction of farming animals and cattle allowed the recreation of traditional foodways of Spain, which were entirely different to those of the semi-nomadic native tribes who roamed the land hunting as a means to complement their diets and small crops. The gastronomy of Sonora, consequentially, is intrinsically mestizo, which means it's a mix of indigenous and Spanish techniques, ingredients and recipes. So here you have my top five dishes from the beautiful state of Sonora. And I will begin with a very special soup that sums up these mestizo roots I was talking about. Wakabaki broth. This seemingly simple but culturally significant dish was in origin a staple in the Yaki and Yoreme gastronomy, but eventually included foreign ingredients like beef, potato, carrot, cabbage, chickpeas, onion, coriander, and garlic. Now here comes the fun part. Of all the ingredients that go in wakabaki broth, only green beans, courgettes, serrano chiles, and corn are native to Mexico. Yet this recipe is recognized as a traditional indigenous dish specially prepared for weddings, religious ceremonies and christenings. Number two, there are dozens of meat-based dishes that populate the Sonoran cuisine and one of them is machaca or carne seca which is beef, 
goat or mutton seasoned, dried and shredded. You can call it actually a type of jerky chew. After the introduction of cattle, farming or ranching became a very profitable activity since the late 1500s. But the extreme hot weather forced people to find methods of food preservation, which obviously is why desiccated meat or machaca became so popular across northern Mexico. Now, there are many regional spice blends that are used to season machaca. Common combinations are salt, pepper, marjoram and powdered garlic. Machaca is popularly used to prepare Mexican scrambled eggs and you only need to rehydrate it before mixing it with tomatoes, onion, chilies and of course eggs. Number 3. Thanks to the reinterpretation of northern Mexican food, Tex-Mex and Calimex menus are populated by burritos and while they are a tasty food, many people believe that is a popular dish all over Mexico, when in fact is only traditionally consumed in a very narrow strip across the northern states that border with America. Sonoran burritos are indeed prepared with flour tortillas. In fact, that sets them apart from the rigor of using only corn tortillas like the rest of the country. Burritos can be filled with refried beans, grilled meat, tomatoes, guacamole and manchego or chihuahua cheese. Number 4. A popular pastry from Sonora are coyotas, which are basically a type of round and flat empanada filled with fruit compotes such as guava, apple and coconut. But one of the most popular fillings is a paste made with jaggery or piloncillo, as it is called in Spanish, and it tastes like the combined flavors of golden syrup and treacle. Number 5. Bacanora. Technically, this is not a food, it's a drink. And what a drink it is. One of the most emblematic spirits from Sonora is Bacanora, which is a type of mezcal, just like tequila, and is distilled using the same method, except that the varieties of agave from Sonora contain a much higher level of sugar, which produces a much stronger drink. Bacanora, as they say, has to be drunk with respect, and since the year 2000, it was granted an origin denomination status, not before surviving prohibition clandestine production and a steep path to revive this drink. Baja California Norte and Baja California Sur. This track is an emblematic song that really marked the beginning of a new era in music, aesthetics, architecture and even design in Mexico. It was pretty much inspired in the vibrant exchange of cultures between the communities of San Diego in California and Tijuana on Mexico's side. The song is interpreted by Nortec Collective. Bostage and Fusible. This album was an iconic shift in Mexico's musical scene.
thousands of years ago, the nomadic groups that chose the peninsula of California to be their forever home went on to create three indigenous groups, Cochimi, Perique, and Guyacura, who continued morphing into other tribes such as the Kiliwa, Pai Pai, and Kukapa. Sadly, the total population of these indigenous groups wasn't really numerous, and they were almost completely absorbed by the caste colonial system and became almost entirely mixed race. The food traditions in both Mexican Californias are largely based on the typical Spanish colonial diet, but nowadays there are many exciting things happening and undoubtedly one of them is wine producing. Now, I really think that the history of wine in Mexico totally deserves its own special episode, or episodes for the matter, and I promise I will make them. But since today I will be touching on the rise of Mexican wines, I will cover some historical aspects about the origins of wine production in Mexico. The first historical document that issues the ordinances, that is, laws and permits in colonial jargon, for the cultivation of grapes for the production of wine was made public in 1524. So that is just three years after the conquest of the territory. Clearly that tells us that wine was a huge staple in the Spanish diet. The initial phase of grape cultivation only took place in the modern-day states of Puebla, Oaxaca, Querétaro, Michoacán and Guanajuato. And it was indeed a trial and error process. And eventually many vineyards were established in the modern-day states of Coahuila and the Californias, many of them by the hands of Jesuits that were particularly successful at producing white and fortified wines. The timeline of wine production had a very bumpy development, uprisings, the War of Independence, the Mexican Revolution and a volatile economy hit this activity just as much as it hit many other essential and non-essential crops and industries for the matter. And it is fair to say that it wasn't until the second decade of the 1800s when the scattered wine-producing regions slowly began to consolidate their production and market. So pretty much thanks to the introduction of Vitis vinifera, commonly known as grapevine almost 500 years ago, Baja California Norte and Baja California Sur's wine industry is a hugely important part of the regional economy and tourism. Now, to put things in perspective, according to official data, this region alone, that is the Mexican Californias, produced 73% of the national production of wine in 2018. That is a lot of wine. As part of the tourism strategy in this area, the wine route was created, which this year includes 65 different wineries in Baja California Norte alone. And the wine route was dubbed as Mexico's Little Tuscany by the deceased and oh-so-remembered Anthony Bourdain. The 
The gastronomy of Baja California Norte has been described by many traditional cooks and chefs as a very young cuisine. The geographical isolation of the peninsula and its closeness to the U.S. created a very constant flow of people that comes and goes from both sides of the border and to and from continental Mexico. In 2002, the Bahamed cuisine was created to celebrate the fusion of Mexican, Mediterranean and Oriental flavors that came together in Baja. Bahamed, indeed, brings together the land, the sea, the past and the future of this rising star of the culinary world. So, here is my list of Californian dishes. First, we have a dish that pretty much embodies California and Tijuana's rich cosmopolitan culinary history, and it is one of my favorite salads, which was created in 1924 by the Italian restaurateur Cesare Cardini. And if you haven't guessed already, I'm talking about Caesar salad. The salad's dressing was trademarked by Cardini, but honestly, you only need going to the supermarket to find dozens of variations of it. Some of the signature ingredients that go in the salad are olive oil, garlic, parmesan cheese, egg yolk, Worcestershire sauce, canola oil, tender romaine lettuce, large croutons and anchovies. Numero dos. In the early days of the podcast, on episode 9, I introduced the story of several immigrant diasporas that were otherwise forced to take refuge in Mexico for different reasons, some of them political, social or economic. And I only want to highlight a few things that are quite relevant in this episode. The construction of the railway in the US was mainly carried by thousands of Chinese workers who were mass recruited and shipped for that purpose. But once the construction was finished, many contractors turned a blind eye to securing more jobs or even offering alternatives to the legal status of those workers, and instead led racial intolerance and radical politicians to run a discrimination campaign to systematically segregate and abuse the rights of these thousands of people who, impoverished, harassed and threatened, decided to escape to Mexico and settled in several border cities, Tijuana being one of them, of course, but many others settled in Mexicali, that is Baja California Norte's capital, and others dissipated along the Pacific coastline of Sonora, Sinaloa, and many others even went all the way to Mexico City. The culinary footprint of these Chinese diasporas is definitely evident in the states of Baja California Norte, Sur and Sinaloa, where Chinese buffets, cafes and popular fast food carts are an essential part of the urban gastronomic landscape. Moving on to dish numero tres, we have the famous fish tacos, also known as Baja tacos or fish and shrimp tacos with many other iterations. Now let's go for a foodie trip here. Like many college students with a healthy appetite and a tight budget, 
Back in the day, I was a frequent patron at my local Chinese buffet, where shiny and often too oily versions of Chinese dishes were offered. I would always go straight for the steamed and fried broccoli, followed by the crisp spring rolls that were more pastry than filling. And you might remember as well those chicken bites in a sweet and sour sauce that you often find at pretty much any Chinese buffet. Now, these nuggets are lightly coated with a cornstarch batter and pan-fried in abundant oil before being glazed in that positively fluorescent orange sweet sauce. Well, that same technique of battering and frying, but using wheat flour instead of cornstarch, in many ways is very similar to Japanese tempura, and it began to be applied to other foods. And since the northwest of Mexico certainly has a strong seafood culture, it was a matter of time before battered fish joined the show with a bang, and it came in the form of a majestic fish taco garnished with a delicious law, salsas, onion, habanero, and many other local additions and variations. The truth is that pretty much all cuisines in the world, at some degree, have been shaped by cross-pollination, and the gradual shift from introduction to adoption and tradition is so subtle that it almost goes unnoticed. I mean, the fact that fish tacos are served in tortillas made with European wheat and battered fish inspired by Chinese cooking methods is one of many such glorious examples of amazing fusion cuisine. Okay, moving on. Numero cuatro, I want to talk more about the growing international recognition of Mexico's wine, and more specifically, California's wineries. Well, as I mentioned before, it has been dubbed as Mexico's Tuscany or even Mexico's Napa Valley. The wine routes of both Baja California Norte and Sur have long corridors that cover dozens of wineries. And the one area that concentrates most of these wineries is the famous Valle de Guadalupe, where you can find El Eacheto and Bodegas de Santo Tomás, among literally more than 20 other wineries. What distinguishes California's wine broods and Valle de Guadalupe is that the way this whole region has been developed that have created a unique destination that sources all its inspiration, ingredients, and resources that allow different sectors to take part in it. You know, from ecotourism, glamping, adventure, and of course, gastrotourism. I will leave a link for you on this episode's notes to read more about the Valle Food and Wine Fest. And just to give you an idea of how big this whole Mexican wine craze is, let me drop some names of chefs that will be there this next October. Elena Reigadas from Rosetta Bakery, chef and baker Nancy Silverton, Wolf and Pog, who owns, I don't know, a squillion restaurants, more than 20 and Eduardo Garcia, owner of Lalo and Maximo Bistrot. And last year, a special guest was no other than the one and only three Michelin star winner, Chef Dominique Crenn. So you maybe want to start heading to the wine aisle and pick a few Mexican wine bottles. And now here's a treat for Mexican beer fans. Because chances are, you might have had a few tecates in your life. Well, let me tell you that Tecate is an actual town in Baja California Norte, 
and indeed is the spiritual home of the first brewery of the state called Tecate Beer, which eventually was acquired by Cuauhtémoc Moctezuma Brewers, who also produce Dos X, Sol, Indio, Bohemia, Superior, and Nochebuena, among other brands. But it is now owned by Heineken. We will return with the show after this short break. I have recently relaunched two of my ebooks, Mexican Street Food and Mexican Fiestas. This second edition has a completely new look and updated content. And here is a treat. I will include a special promo code to get a discount when you subscribe to my newsletter. You will get occasional updates, book reviews for your foodie reading list, and a nice welcome gift when you sign up. Sounds great, no? So scroll down to this episode's notes to find the link to subscribe. The extremely hot coastal state of Sinaloa has been a regional destination for beach and sport fishing lovers. And apparently, it has been since time immemorial as one of the largest indigenous groups the Yoreme called themselves the people from the Riviera. The Mayo also had another name to call themselves, which was the people who respect traditions. And if you want some indigenous dark humor, they came up with a name for white people, which is Yaori, that means disrespectful people. Many of you might have seen Pixar's film Coco, well, one of the main characters, Ernesto de la Cruz, the singer, was widely inspired in two of Mexico's most beloved actors of the Golden Age cinema, Jorge Negrete and Pedro Infante, who, unlike Ernesto de la Cruz, were beloved by everyone. And Pedro Infante, who starred in more than 60 films, was actually native to Mazatlán, in Sinaloa. And even when he died many years ago in a fatal accident, he is still pretty much alive in the collective memory, hence the hat tip in the film. Another interesting fact about Sinaloa is that throughout the 19th century, the intense and profitable activity of its merchant ports that facilitated the introduction of products to the US attracted many German and English investors who established many import companies, and soon after, a German-Mexican community was born. Traces of this legacy can be seen in many architectural styles, but also in the regional music, as German companies pushed the sales of German brass band instruments and accordions. So, you can actually blame them for the Mexican banda and umpa umpa music, because without them, Germans it wouldn't exist. And I will squeeze in the mention of another German contribution, which was brewing. And I'm sure you might have seen or even have had Pacifico beer. Well, Pacifico beer is brewed precisely in Mazatlán, Sinaloa, where the very first German-Mexican lager brand rose to international fame in the 1900s. Now, 
Let's get started exploring some loved traditional foods from the sun-kissed state of Sinaloa. Number one, we have chilorio, which is a type of pulled pork, heavily marinated with pasilla or guajillo chiles, garlic, oregano, and cumin. Nowadays, people use poultry or beef to make chilorio, and it is served with hot wheat tortillas and beans. Next, we have Tacos Gobernador. These now famous tacos are either a culinary Frankenstein or pure pairing genius. Urban legend has it that some creative cooks were preparing for the visit of the state's governor back in the year 2000. And since both red meat and seafood are equally popular in Sinaloa, they decided to play Russian roulette and invented a taco with machaca, jerky chew, shrimp, onion, bell peppers, sliced celery, oregano, and grilled manchego cheese. And of course, salsa verde served with soft and hot corn tortillas. And let me tell you, there is not a single self-respecting taqueria in Mazatlán, Sinaloa, that doesn't serve these magnificent tacos. Number three, we have aguachile. Aguachile is one of the most humble seafood dishes that rose to international fame, not for its simplicity necessarily, but for its genius. The name is a reference to the watery brine in which jumbo shrimp are cured, following a sort of ceviche type of method, using a staple mix of lime juice, powdered chiles, and sliced red onion. Once the shrimp have been cured in this brine, they can be served with fresh slices of cucumber. Aguachiles are popular in Sinaloa and in its neighboring coastline, including the state of Nayarit, where fish, scallops, and other types of seafood are also used to prepare variations of aguachile. Número 4. One of my favorite soft drinks when I was a kid is called Tonicol. Tonicol is produced in Rosario, Sinaloa and it's a fizzy drink made with vanilla extract and an insane amount of corn syrup, enough to make you glow all night. But man, it was delicious. Actually, now that I think of it, it's still very difficult to find these days. But if you ever come across it, by all means, make vanilla ice cream floats. You will thank me later. And finally, from Sinaloa, I chose some fairly innocent sweet treats, known by the names of taquarines or coricos. They are flat biscuits shaped in the form of a hoop and prepared with a mix of corn and wheat flour, cinnamon or aniseed, sugar, shortening, eggs, and some recipes also call for lime or orange juice. Other variations use jaggery or piloncillo syrup instead of sugar. I think it will be a bit too much to call them a shortbread because they have no butter, they're made with lard, but you know, they have a very similar texture. Now, if you're a long-time listener of the show, you might have noticed that I do tend to stay on the fringes of current political commentary. As of late, the state of Sinaloa has populated the front pages of international news websites for all the wrong reasons, specifically for the operation of the Sinaloa cartel. And while I won't get any close to grant them the oxygen of publicity, I just want to say that while the wrongs of a few have a deep and complex impact in the rest of society, it does not deter the fact that there are thousands of communities 
who find strength in their tight-knit structure and day by day show enormous resilience to carry on with as much dignity and integrity as their present situation allows. To them, my respect, sympathy and admiration. The state of Nayarit rests just above the imaginary line that divides Mexico from north to south. Its geographical dimensions might not be as big compared to, say, the mighty state of Chihuahua, which can fit Iceland twice with extra room, true fact. Now, because Nayarit is so close to a more ethnically diverse part of the country, it is home to 11 indigenous groups. And while I'm sure you've never heard of most of them, chances are you might have seen some of their art. The Huicholes, or Visarica, are the largest of all, followed by Cora, Tepewa, Nahuatl, Tlapaneco, Masawa, and Purepecha. And very interestingly, several tribes prove that in the pre-Columbian world, migrations and expansionism of kingdoms was fairly common. Hence the Zapotec and Mixteco presence, which are groups originally from modern-day Oaxaca, which is miles away. And more surprisingly even is the presence of Mayan groups who relocated from the peninsula of Yucatan all the way to Nayarit. You might have seen colorful Mexican ragdolls with bright ribbons braided in their hair and little embroidered dresses. Those are some of the many crafts created by the Otomi group, which is also part of Nayarit's cultures. The Nayarit Riviera has pretty much reinvented itself as a tourist destination. From surf competitions in the famous beaches of Soyulita and Litibu, sport fishing is a huge industry as well. But curiously enough, some ancestral spiritual practices from indigenous groups, such as the Cora and Visarica, have fascinated Mexicans and non-Mexicans alike because of the use of a highly toxic cactus called peyote, which has hallucinogenic properties is used in several rituals as a sacred intoxicant to help participants achieve a higher state of consciousness and transcend the limitations of the time-space continuum and communicate with nature and the universe. I mean, no wonder why people go crazy about it. The chemical compounds within hikuri are apparently stronger than those in LSD, which is why its use is highly controlled and the plant itself is protected, mainly thanks to the boom of the drug tourism from America that flocked to Mexico in search of hippie inspiration. If you want to read more about it, I will leave you a link to Carlos Castaneda's book, The Teachings of Don Juan. And bon voyage to you. Acid dreams aside, let's talk about Nayarit's top five dishes. A very interesting dish that actually has a very palpable indigenous origin is a soup or broth called tlakistiwili, also called tastiwile. It is thickened with corn masa, so it has a dense texture and is prepared with a mix of fresh and dried shrimp, pasilla, serrano and guajillo chiles, flavored with Mexican oregano, 
and serve with generous slices of avocado. Número 2. In previous episodes, I've mentioned that there are more than 500 listed recipes to prepare tamales in Mexico. Well, let me tell you about a very special seafood tamal from Nayarit called tamal de camarón. These savory tamales are prepared with jumbo shrimp and a recado or sauce made with ancho poblano and serrano chiles, garlic and a few spices. The cool part of these tamales is that the jumbo shrimp are actually cooked whole within the tamal butter. So after steaming, the corn husks that serve as wrapping are peeled off to reveal the most curious looking tamal with giant shrimp peering out of the cooked dumpling. Fascinating to see and quite aromatic and flavorful, as you can imagine. Not deviating much from the fishy theme, we have pescado sarandeado, which is a whole grilled fish marinated with garlic and a sauce made with guajillo chiles, onion and oregano. This is a local favorite. The fish is lavishly coated with a marinade and unapologetic amounts of butter. The word saranda in Spanish means grilling basket, hence the name of the dish, pescado sarandeado. This actually isn't a particularly complex dish. As you have noticed, none of the original dishes I've mentioned today really are. That is also part of their essence. Traditional cooks from this region really do as much as possible to highlight the already delicious flavors of the great ingredients that are naturally available, and that indeed is what makes them grand. Number four. I very much want to mention desiccated banana or platano pancle, which is a very simple but quite tasty way to preserve and eat bananas. The fruit is peeled and sliced lengthwise, then coated with a jaggery syrup and desiccated for several hours. The texture is actually a bit rubbery and very chewy. It is almost like a plantain jerky, if you will. Again, another favorite from my childhood that apparently was filled with the simple pleasures of innocent treats. And last, numero cinco, I will go back to the basics with the Nayarit indigenous cuisine and talk about corn tortillas, which of course form the base of the daily diet for millions of people all across Mexico. And I want to tell you a very sweet legend from the Huichol tribe. It tells the story of a very poor Huichol man who was about to faint from hunger when he saw a bird, hungry and angry. He tried to kill it, but the bird told him that it was actually Mother Nature in disguise, and taking pity on the poor man, decided to forgive him and present him with a wonderful gift that will ensure that neither him nor anyone else will ever go hungry again. They went to the sacred house of corn, where five beautiful ladies lived. They were white corn, blue corn, yellow corn, red corn and black corn. The man fell in love with blue corn and asked for her hand in marriage. After the wedding, Blue Corn magically produced hundreds of seedlings and gave them to everyone in the village and taught them how to plant and look after corn crops, how to harvest and cook with it. She then turned herself into corn dough and into a sweet corn atole drink, which everybody drank and no one ever again went hungry, for she had blessed them for life. A few years ago, thanks to a documentary called Made in Mexico, which you can watch on Netflix, the indigenous witchhall band Venado Azul rose to fame thanks to the song Cucinella. 
This is a very innocent and catchy tune, and is almost entirely sung in Huichol language, and talks about the women who make tortillas, and how hard they work to make delicious food, and how beautiful it is to see them at work. And to say goodbye to Nayarit and this region, I will play for you a little bit of cocinella. In many ways, the North Pacific coast of Mexico is a country of its own. Its economic self-sufficiency works just as well since they have a pretty independent dynamic from the rest of the country. On the other hand, it is quite remarkable that several of their indigenous traditions, costumes, music, practices and dances have become deeply embedded into the visual construct of the national identity and even played part in the country's own soundtrack. Certainly, carne asada or grilled meat, fish tacos, tecate and pacifico beers are synonymous with amazing Mexican holidays. But beyond that, the rapid consolidation of Mexico's own wine country and exciting new Mex-Med cuisine and the growing popularity of Valle de Guadalupe's gastronomic festivals are an inspiration for other regions to generate their own destinations and a new and more robust tourism industry. I think it is self-evident that these northern states' cuisines are relatively isolated, but in many ways they don't carry the burden of a rigid tradition that slows innovation, and their constant exchange with cosmopolite border towns on both sides has pushed them to reinvent the rules of engagement and negotiate a new and vibrant culinary discourse. So here it is, to the present and exciting future of the Mexican Californias and the North Pacific coast, who have put themselves on the world's foodie radar. May the sun keep shining over their coasts, valleys and mountains, and let's raise our glasses of Mexican wine in their honor. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. If you enjoyed this episode, please help the show reach more people by sharing it, writing a review, and rating it on your podcast app. Send me your comments, questions, or reach out to say hi on Instagram, Twitter, or email. You can write me to hello at pasichipotle.com and find the links to my social media on this episode's notes. Well, that's it for this week, my friends. 
until the next time.